The following teaching is possible thanks to the friends and partners of Spirit and Truth Fellowship International. Well, God bless you and welcome to this Spirit and Truth Fellowship Teaching of the Month. And this month I'm teaching on the day of Pentecost. And it's incredibly valuable for you and I to really understand the Feast of Pentecost because it was a one-day feast and it was the time that God chose to start the Christian church. So we're going to talk about the Feast of Pentecost, and I'm going to hear some of the things I'm going to cover. We're going to have a brief introduction to introduce the feast, then what is it called? In other words, what are the names for it? When did it occur? I want to talk about the gift of Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost, and then where did the Pentecost occur in Acts chapter 2? There's some controversy about that. And then lastly, what happened at the day of Pentecost, and what does it mean to you and me. So those are some of the things we're going to cover. So now in by way of brief introduction, Pentecost was one of the three major feasts in the Israelite calendar when all of the males of age of Israel had to go to the temple. God had commanded, and we'll read this in a little bit, that all the males were to go to the temple three times a year, and Pentecost was one of those feasts. And then God chose the day of Pentecost, and we see this in Acts chapter 2, to be the feast at which he would pour out his great gift of Holy Spirit. And we learn from Acts chapter 2, and in particularly Acts chapter 2, verse 33, that on the day of Pentecost, God had given the gift of Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ poured out the gift of Holy Spirit onto the people in the audience who believed. When Peter preached his sermon about the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the people who believed, and there were about 3,000 of them that day, they got born again. And the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is the very first time in history it was available to be born again. Now, let's not get born again confused with saved. People in the Old Testament could be saved, but they weren't saved by being born again. The new birth is reserved for the church. And the birthday of the church and the, and the day that the gift of Holy Spirit was poured out upon people and they became Christians, they became part of the Christian church, they became born again, that, was, that started on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So let's talk about the, the Israelite calendar year, the calendar year that God gave to Israel. And like I say, there were three major feasts in which all of the men of Israel, all the males of age, had to appear before God at the temple. And the first feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread started at sunset after the Passover lamb was killed. So sometimes it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes people just lump it together, kind of like we talk about, you know, Christmas. We'll say, you know, you you look at all the Christmas decorations, for example, in a place, and you say, wow, it's Christmas. That doesn't mean it's Christmas Day. It means it's Christmas time. And the same thing was what happened with Passover. And we have to be careful because of that when we're looking at the word Passover in the scripture, that sometimes the scripture says Passover, and we know it's not the day the Passover lamb was killed, but the general time of Passover. So the Passover lamb was killed on the 14th of Nisan, 
Nisan was the first month of the year. The Passover lamb was killed on the 14th of Nisan. And then at sunset, the Feast of Unleavened Bread started in the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day feast. And that's important, and that's going to come up later. Then during that seven-day feast, there was a Sabbath. Obviously, you got seven days. There's a Sabbath in there somewhere. So there, there's a Sabbath in that seven-day feast. And the day after this, that Sabbath, you started counting seven weeks. And then, and when you did uh, seven weeks in a day, and that then was um, the 50 days to Pentecost, which is how Pentecost got its name. And we'll talk about that. So you have the first feast, the feast of the year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts the evening after the Passover lamb. The day after the Sabbath, we start counting and you count seven weeks, and it ends up being seven weeks in a day until the day of Pentecost. And then at the end of the year, you have another feast, the Feast of Booze. Uh, it's more commonly called the Feast of Tabernacles, but perhaps the Feast of Booze is a more accurate way of talking about it. That's B-O-O-T-H-S, a booth like a telephone, well, they don't have telephone booths anymore. But anyway, when I was a kid, they did. So the Feast of Booths, uh, and that also was a seven-day feast. And the fact that Pentecost is the only one of the three feasts, it's a one-day feast. Feast of Unleavened Bread was seven days. Feast of Booths was seven days. The Feast of Pentecost was one day. And that's going to become very important in our understanding of the fullness of what happened on the day of Pentecost and what God was doing. Now, if we're going to read the Old Testament and understand about these feasts, well, God, God hasn't exactly made it easy for us. You know, God wants us to spend time with him, to learn about him. He could have made the Bible a lot easier than he did, but that's not what he was trying to do. God wasn't trying to just make some kind of like, you know, God for dummies book. God was trying to make a book that would, would show us his love, his nature, his intricacy, and also test how willing we were to learn about God. How much time are we willing to spend? Or do we just want to put him on a back burner or only have things to do with God if they're easy? So here's God. And one of the things he did was he called this feast that you and I commonly know as Pentecost. He never called it by the word Pentecost in the Old Testament. It wasn't known by the name Pentecost until it came to the Greeks. In the Old Testament, it's called the Feast of Weeks because there was seven weeks between Passover and Pentecost. And we'll see it called the Feast of Weeks in verses like Exodus 34, 22. Uh, it's called the Day of First Fruits, uh, like in Numbers 28, 26, uh, because it was a one-day feast. And it's when the, uh, it, when you, by the time you, it, it's kind of, it's almost a little confusing and we'll talk about this in a minute, but to be called the day of first fruits, but it's not the first fruits of the harvest, but it's the first full fruits of the fullness of the harvest. I hope that makes some kind of sense. And then also like in verses like 23, uh, Exodus 23, 16, it's called the feast of harvest because obviously it was a harvest feast. But then we've got to be really careful because the feast of booths is also called 
the Feast of Harvest in the Old Testament. So you're reading along through the Old Testament, you know, the law like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and you read about the Feast of Harvest, you've got to be sensitive to the context. Is this talking about Pentecost or is this talking about the Feast of Booths at the end of the summer? So those are the three names that what we call the Day of Pentecost was called in the Old Testament, Feast of Weeks, Day of First Fruits. Feast of Harvest. How did it get to be called Pentecost? Well, the Greeks came along and they realized that there was 50 days between the time that the wave sheaf of grain was waved in the temple in the Feast of Unleavened Bread until the day of Pentecost. And so they just said, ah, it's 50 days. Okay, fine, Pentecost. And Penta is related, Pentecost is related to Penta 550. So that's where the Greeks got Pentecost. And as I said, historically, Pentecost was one of the three feasts when the men of Israel, the males of age, were to appear at the tabernacle or later on at the temple. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 23, verse 14, God says, you are to observe a feast to me three times a year. In Exodus 34, 23, three times in a year, all your males are to appear before the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel. Three times a year. See, that's second time. Third time, Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times in a year, all your males are to appear before Yahweh your God in the place that he will choose in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and in the Feast of Weeks and in the Feast of Booths. So those were the three feasts that the men were to appear before God. They were supposed to go to the temple. Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, which we know is the day of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And then in Deuteronomy 16, 16, God closes with something that's very important to pay attention to. He says they are not to appear before Yahweh empty. And that's um, also in Exodus 23, 14 to 19 meaning that when a man showed up at this feast, they weren't supposed to just show up empty-handed. They were supposed to be able to bring something, and that becomes very important as we start talking more about the day of Pentecost. Now, when we talk about the feasts of Israel, and we, we see these three major feasts, but actually there were special sacrifices and special times throughout the year. And there were reasons for that. And one of them was so that, you know, God, people would take time for God or remember God, notice God, keep God in mind. And another was there were hidden types and portrayals of Jesus Christ in the feasts. I mean, when we talk about just simply remembering God, there were special sacrifices done every Sabbath. So every seventh day, there were special sacrifices done to remember God. On the first day of the month at the new moon, there were special sacrifices. Every month, people would remember God. God, thank you for another month. Then you had the three major feasts. And then there were other times during the year that things went on. And these were uh, to sometimes to give people rest, like the Sabbath, sometimes to keep God in mind. And sometimes, like I said, there were ways that the Messiah was portrayed. Now, what's interesting is when the Messiah was being portrayed in these feasts, for the most part, the Jews never knew it because they simply didn't know enough about the Messiah with foresight. 
But with 2020 hindsight, we can see the Messiah portrayed beautifully in a number of these feasts and, and portrayed in a number of different ways. And by the way, not just portrayed in the feasts, but in all kinds of what things in the Old Testament, God portrayed the Messiah. For example, let's take Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark touched down on the 17th day of the seventh month, according to Genesis. But God rotated the months, and the seventh month became the first month. So what do we see? Well, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the 17th day of the first month, which means when Noah's ark touched down on land, it wasn't on the sea anymore. You know, in the sea, it's often portrayed as something dangerous, and it portrays death. When Noah's ark touched down on the land, mankind was safe. And when Jesus Christ got up from the dead on the 17th day of that same month, mankind was safe because there was solid evidence that man's sin had been paid for and God could raise the dead. So did the people of Noah's time see that parallel between Noah and Christ? No, they didn't. But we, looking back, can see that parallel, and it's the same thing with feasts. So, for example, we take the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You read about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There was one sheaf of grain that was waved, and the sheaf was acceptable for all the people. And the bread that was baked, well, (laughs) it's called the the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because the bread was all unleavened, which meant what? Which meant the bread didn't have any yeast. And in the Old Testament, what did yeast stand for? Sin. And so here at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you had one sheath waved, and you had bread that had no leaven, no sin in it. And that sheaf of grain and that bread represented Jesus Christ who died for our sins and had no sin. Then we get to the day of Pentecost. And and what happens at the day of Pentecost? During the day of Pentecost, there were two loaves of bread presented, and they were baked with yeast. Wait a minute. The yeast is sin. <laughs> the two loaves are baked with sin. You know, when the Jews never understood, uh, baked with yeast, which represented sin, the Jews never understood. Why are there two loaves? Fast forward 1,400 years from the time of Moses, when the law was given to the day of Pentecost, closer actually, uh, probably 14, 1,450 years or so. You fast forward, and, and what do we get? We have you and I accepted by God. You have God on the day of Pentecost accepting Jews and Gentiles into the church, two completely different bodies, the Jews and the Gentiles accepted into the church. And and what do we have? We're accepted in spite of our sin. And so God portrayed that way back. And this is one of the reasons that I know that the Bible could not have been written by man. You know, oh gosh, you know, I, I, I read a lot of theological stuff. I read a lot of commentaries. I read a lot of articles. I listen to a lot of scholars and they talk about, yeah, Moses wrote, David wrote, Samuel wrote. 
People, those men of God, it, it says in the New Testament, you know this, that the men were moved by Holy Spirit. They wrote by revelation, 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. No human would invent that there were two loaves of bread baked with leaven, with yeast, which represented sin. They wouldn't have ever invented that. But that was God's plan. He wasn't telling anybody about it, but it was God's plan. And he said, we're going to do this. And so there are hidden types all through these feasts that we can learn about and picture Jesus Christ and the work that he did. You know, we also see this actually in the fact that the uh, Feast of Pentecost is called the Day of First Fruits. And I can remember many years ago reading about this and thinking, that's really strange because the day of Pentecost is is not necessarily the day of first fruits. It ended up being that God said, I want you to take your harvest and, and bring the best and, and offer a first fruits of your harvest. But the, the barley harvest had started, you know, months before, and that was the first fruits back when the... Um, back with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And here the day of Pentecost is called the Day of First Fruits. And we're kind of like, um, okay, yeah, if you take the wheat harvest as a whole, and then you put together an offering and you make these two loaves, I guess there's a way of seeing this as the first fruits of the complete harvest and, and we can make it work. But like I say, you fast forward a whole, you know, you fast forward to the day of Pentecost and the day of first fruits all of a sudden makes sense because the day of Pentecost then was the day when the Spirit was poured out, the gift of Holy Spirit was poured out. You know, and we'll get into this in a minute, but the in more detail, but the Spirit that you and I have is the first fruits of the new spirit that God promised in the Old Testament. That's very clear. I mean, it says right in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, quote, and not only that, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves, and, it, and the verse goes on. So you and I have the first fruits of the spirit. Who knew back in the Old Testament that the first fruits of the Spirit would be poured out on the day of Pentecost? God did. And so he called it the day of first fruits. I can pretty much guarantee you that Moses would have thought, well, I can't call Pentecost the day of first fruits. I mean, after all, you know, they've, they've been harvesting the barley harvest for, for almost two months now, and the wheat harvest is being, being pulled in. You know, Moses would have never thought to call the day of Pentecost the day of first fruits. That comes out of the mind and heart of a loving Heavenly Father. Absolutely. And we can, we can see some of this in the reading of, of the law. You know, and so as long as we're talking about the reading of the law, let's let's move on and talk about when did the day of Pentecost occur? When was the 50 days? How did they know when it was? And actually, there's quite a controversy over that. And historically, there's been a controversy over it. And as far as I'm concerned, that controversy was settled once and for all by Jesus Christ and by understanding that the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then Pentecost were ways of portraying and 
picturing the Messiah and were given in part as types of the Messiah. So let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23. We're going to start reading in verse 9, and we're going to read about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there's Passover sacrifice on the 14th of Nisan. Then at sunset starts the 15th of Nisan. Remember, the Jewish day start at sunset, not midnight. Our day starts at midnight. The Jewish day started at sunset. So you had the Passover lamb killed on the 14th of Nisan. On the 15th of Nisan at sunset that day, that started the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover feast was eaten. And it was during that time then that we we are reading about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Leviticus 23.9. The Lord said, um, this is out of the NIV, by the way, this next section of scripture. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land that I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest, and by the way, reap its harvest, that'll be the barley harvest. That's the first harvest was the barley harvest. The wheat harvest was would come later. When you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread contained the first of the barley harvest. And he says, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. Verse 11, he is to wave the sheaf before Yahweh. Now, how's he going to do that? He's got to go to where Yahweh is, which is in the temple. So the priest is going to enter the temple with a sheaf and he's going to wave it before Yahweh so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. Now there's quite a controversy, even between the Pharisees and Sadducees at the time of Christ, on what that meant. The Sadducees controlled the temple, and in this particular case, I believe they were right in their interpretation. They said the Sabbath was not the special Sabbath, which would occur the, the first day of the un, of unleavened bread was a special Sabbath, but he said it would, the, the Sadducees said it was to be waived on the Sabbath. Uh, the regular Sabbath that fell during that seven-day feast. And then it's supposed to be, uh, and then it'll be accepted on your behalf. And then verse 15, from the day after the Sabbath, the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days up to the day of the seventh Sabbath. So there's the seven weeks, why Pentecost is called the Feast of Weeks, and 50 days, why Pentecost is called Pentecost. (laughs) The day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to Yahweh for wherever you live. And then here's our, look at verse 17. For wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an ephah of fine flour baked with yeast, Wow. Why? Yeast stood for sin. You have the two loaves. We today can look back and say, this was typological of what God was going to do. There were two different groups, Jews and Gentiles, and they were going to be accepted by God in spite of their sin on the day of Pentecost. And then, of course, Pentecost was to be a feast day. Verse 21 says, on that same day, you're to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. So basically, the Old Testament says that Pentecost falls 50 days from the first day after the Sabbath. And the Sabbath would be the Saturday 
Sabbath. And I said that we can tell that it was the regular Sabbath from the typology of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ uh, was crucified and um, if you're if you're new to this understanding of the crucifixion of Christ, we at Spirit and Truth have some information on this. But Jesus Christ was crucified on the 14th of Nisan, which in 28 AD occurred on a Wednesday. Jesus had prophesied he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. That's Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. The Son of Man, as Jonah was in the, the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And that would be Wednesday before sunset when he was put in the heart of the earth to Thursday before sunset is one day to Friday before sunset is two days, till Saturday before sunset is three days. Christ got up Saturday just before sunset. And the day after the Sabbath, he has to present himself in the temple. And so Christ had to wait for daylight for the time of the sheaf offering in the temple. And then, and we know that's why, for example, when Mary Magdalene came to him on Sunday morning, he had, he was down in the valley. We call it the Kidron Valley where the grave was. And he comes out of the grave in the Kidron Valley. He's down in the valley. He's got to go uphill several hundred yards to get to the temple. And Mary Magdalene was going to grab hold of him. And he said, don't touch me because I haven't gone up to my father. Now, a lot of people think gone up to my father is the ascension. It has nothing to do with the ascension, because if so, why would Jesus tell Mary Magdalene, don't touch me? But then look at Thomas and say, come here and touch me. Put your hand in my side. Put your hand in the in the nail holes in my hands. Touch me and see it is me. So you can't tell Mary Magdalene, don't touch me, and then tell Thomas, you can touch me all over. (laughs) No, what's going on there? It was Sunday morning while it was still dark. Jesus Christ had not presented himself as the sheaf in the temple. And yet he would he would tell Mary Magdalene so she would stop weeping, so she would stop worrying. He just cared so much for her heart. And then he would go up to the temple and present himself before God. And once he did that and he said, here I am, God, and he presented himself as the wave sheaf in the temple, then, you know, then he goes back and he starts meeting with his disciples and gets a, a, a program back. So Jesus Christ presented himself the day after the regular Sabbath. And so reading that back into Leviticus, then we can see why the day after the Sabbath had to be the regular Sabbath. By the way, um, if we understand that, then we can now put some dates together to what's happening at the time of Christ. Christ was crucified on Wednesday, the 14th of Nisan. Then his resurrection was on Saturday, the 17th of Nisan. Then his appearance to Mary Magdalene and going up to God in the temple would have been Sunday, the 18th of Nisan. That meant the day of Pentecost was 50 days later on Sunday, the 8th of Sivan, which is the the third month. So that's how that would work. You know, the first month of the Hebrew year was Nisan, um, also called Abib in the Old Testament. Then the second month was Iyar. 
then the third month was Sivan, then the, uh, the fourth month was Tammuz, then Av, then Elul, and seventh month Tishri, and that's in Tishri was the Day of Atonement uh, and the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of the Blowing of Trumpets, and, and that kind of thing. So we've got uh, Crucifixion of Christ, the 14th of Nisan, the Resurrection on the 17th, he appears to Mary Magdalene on the 18th of Nisan, and then his uh, day of Pentecost, 50 days later on the 8th of Sivan, which was the third month. Now, one of the most important things about the day of Pentecost was because that was the day that God chose to pour out the gift of Holy Spirit and have the new birth available for the first time in the start of the Christian church. And it's really important that you and I understand this gift of Holy Spirit that we have. Because in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus Christ said, you will receive power when Holy Spirit has come upon you. And Christians have spiritual power. We do. And we need to be bold enough to tap into it. And we need to know how to tap into it. But let's talk a little bit about what came on the day of Pentecost. It was a brand new Holy Spirit that did not exist before. Jesus Christ talked about this in John chapter 7. So if we go to John chapter 7, verse 37, um, it says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty... Whoever believes in me, let him come to me and drink. As the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39. Now this he said about the spirit, which those who believed in him were going to receive. For as yet there was no spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now I want to tell you this verse... <laughs> <laughs> this verse has thrown a whole bunch of commentators and scholars and teachers into a tizzy because the Greek text says, for as yet there was no spirit. And that's incredibly hard for most Christians to understand because they don't know what Holy Spirit is. Now, in reading John 7, 39, which says, for as yet there was no spirit, we have to understand that our modern textual research shows us that that was the original reading. In fact, if you go to the King James Version and you even read what the King James Version says, it says, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, but the word given is in italics telling us it wasn't in the Greek texts, and they knew about that even as early as 1611. And if you take the italics out of the King James, it'll say, for the Holy Ghost was not yet. And that's precisely what it says. And then the scribes, the people that handle the text, have tried to work with the text or massage the Greek text. But thankfully, we now have the scholarship to get back to the original. I think it's interesting that the NET text note says uh, they add the word given and they say this is to avoid the misunderstanding that the spirit didn't exist yet. There's no misunderstanding. The text says there was no spirit yet. Well, what's it talking about? Well, there was the kind of spirit that God gave in the Old Testament. Of course, he put spirit on Moses. He put spirit on his prophets and prophetesses. So there was a kind of spirit in the Old Testament. 
but the kind of spirit that God foretold was going to come. God said, I'm going to make, I'm going to have a new spirit. There's going to be a new kind of spirit that's going to come. And that spirit didn't exist during the life of Christ. And and it says why. It says there wasn't any spirit yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. In order for God to pour out this new spirit, Jesus had to die for the sins of mankind and then be raised from the dead and be glorified. And so there wasn't this new spirit and, and Jesus Christ knew this new spirit was coming, by the way, in this new spirit. You know, you and I have it. <laughs> if you're born again, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you've got this new spirit. John 14, 17, Jesus is talking at the Last Supper. He says, this helper is the spirit of truth, which the world is not able to receive because it doesn't see it, neither knows it. You know it, for it's present with you and will be in you. So here's Christ saying, yeah, you've got some spirit now. Right now, it's it's with you, but you're going to get a new spirit, and that new spirit is going to be in you. You and I know that when we got Holy Spirit, we got that Holy Spirit born in us, and that new birth didn't exist before the day of Pentecost, and the kind of spirit that you and I have today did not exist before the day of Pentecost. If we look at the Old Testament we can see why the Holy Spirit is called the promised Holy Spirit. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit inside you. So God in the Old Testament says, I'm going to give you a new spirit. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I will also give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit inside you. And in verse 27, I will put my spirit inside you and cause you to walk in my statutes. How did Jesus Christ know there was a new comforter coming that would be in people and not just with people? He knew it because it was part of the Old Testament prophecies. Exactly. What, what people did not know was that God would give this spirit to the Christian church. God did that because he's God and he wanted to. It was promised for the people in the, mainly in the millennial kingdom. If you go back and you read the prophecies in the Old Testament, it talks about, you know, it's part of Christ's kingdom that there would be a new spirit poured out. But now we know, wow, we get that spirit early. By the way, that's why the spirit that you and I have is called the promised Holy Spirit. For example, Acts 2.33, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. Why is it called the promised Holy Spirit? Because, <laughs> because it was promised in the Old Testament. What was, what was amazing is not that a new spirit was promised, but that God gave the new spirit to the Christian church on the day of Pentecost, something that nobody had any idea he was going to do. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, um, in whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation, and when you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Again, this is because it was promised in the Old Testament. Absolutely. So the gift of Holy Spirit was poured out, and then you and I have power 
And we'll see that as we begin then to read the book of Acts. But before we get into the book of Acts, what I want to do is now cover the next phase of this teaching, which is where did the day of Pentecost event happen? Where were the apostles when the Spirit was poured out upon them? Okay, so where were the apostles and the others when the Holy Spirit, the gift of Holy Spirit, was poured out in the day of Pentecost? Well, here's what Acts chapter 2 verse 2 says. It says, And suddenly a sound came from heaven like a strong rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And because this verse uses the word house, tradition is taught that the apostles were in a place called the upper room. But if we take time to examine the text, and if we understand what God is doing on the day of Pentecost, and if we understand the geography of Israel, then we're going to see that there was no place that the day of Pentecost could have occurred and fit with the text except the temple. So uh, what, do we, what do we know about this? Well, first of all, textually, the word house, <laughs> the word house is unbelievably flexible. The word house can obviously be a house, you know, a place where people live. But our human body is called a house. For example, in Matthew 12, 44, uh, a family or extended family is called a house, like we talk about in the Old Testament, the house of Saul. Uh, descendants from a common ancestor are called a house. We understand this would be the house of Israel. A kingdom or nation can be called a house. The house of David, for example, in the Old Testament. The Christian believers together are called a house. 1 Peter 2.5 says the Christians are built into a spiritual house. And then, of course, the tabernacle or the temple was called a house. It was called the house of Yahweh, the house of God. Uh, very, very often it was simply called the house. This can be sometimes a little hard to see because some of the modern, modern English translations want to help us out. And so they take the word house when it's just standing on its own and they translate, in fact, even sometimes when it's not standing on its own, and they translate it temple. So you're reading along in the, uh, in the Bible, and you're reading about the temple, the temple, the temple, and what you don't know is behind that is the Hebrew word house, house, house. But people are thinking, oh, well, that's going to be confusing. The translators, that's going to be confusing to people. So we're going to help them out by translating it temple. Well, it may help out the beginning reader in the Old Testament, but then it causes confusion when it comes to Acts chapter 2. Because if you were reading the Hebrew text, and every single time the Hebrew text said house, when you're reading Acts 2 and it says house, it wouldn't surprise you that this was the temple. But we have a lot of proof, a lot of other reasons to believe that the Pentecost experience happened in the temple. Now, one of the things that we've got to be aware of is by the time of Christ, Pentecost was associated with the giving of the law. Remember that Pentecost came 50 days after the um, 50 days after the wave sheath, and that was approximately when the law was given from Mount Sinai by God, because Israel left Egypt on the 15th day of the month of Nisan. And then they wandered in the wilderness, and then they arrived at Mount Sinai, and then they were they spent a little bit of time on at the foot of Mount Sinai, and then God gave the law. 
So what happened by the time of Christ is people associated the day of Pentecost with the giving of the law. Now, this then becomes very important, and we'll see the parallel here. Because when God gave the law, he gave it to the entire nation of Israel. He didn't just pull one or two guys aside and give them the law. He spoke the law to the whole nation of Israel, and he did so audibly. Now, this gets completely buried in Christian tradition uh, by movies such as the Ten Commandments. And I like the Ten Commandments movie. I love the, you know, Charlton Heston and all the famous actors and the Ten Commandments is, is, you know, larger than life, except it doesn't reproduce what the Bible actually says. When the law was given, when the Ten Commandments were given, God came down on Mount Sinai, gathered the nation of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, and then shouted the Ten Commandments down off the mountain in a huge audible voice. And he presented the law to the whole Jewish nation. And we're going to see that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost, that God gathered all the men. Remember, Pentecost is only a one-day feast. All the people are there in the temple on that one day. And God then speaks to them through the wind, through speaking in tongues and witnesses to the whole Jewish nation and gives them the opportunity to get born again, to accept the spirit, uh, to get everlasting life through Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the giving of the law and how, you know, how that came to be, because this parallel is pretty cool. So Exodus chapter 19, we'll start in verse 9. Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people can hear when I speak to you and can also believe you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh. Verse 16, it came to pass on the third day when it was daybreak that there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, that's Mount Sinai, and the sound of a shofar, that's the ram's horn trumpet, that was exceeding loud, and all the people in the camp trembled, because <laughs> the mountain's smoking, there's fire, there's lightning, and there's this huge shofar sound, the, the ram's horn trumpet, except nobody's up there to blow it, and it's much louder than a human could have blown anyway, and <laughs> they're scared, I get that, that would have been a frightening place to be, verse 17. Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the lower part of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai smoked all over, verse 18, because Yahweh descended on it in fire, and its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh said to him, Go down, and you are to bring Aaron up with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through uh, to come up to Yahweh, lest he break forth on them. Verse 25, very important. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So where are the people? They're at the foot of the mount. Where are the priests? They're at the foot of the mount. Where's Moses and Aaron? They're at the foot of the mount. Who's on top of the mountain? God, verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You must not have any other gods besides me. And he speaks the Ten Commandments to the people. 
And what was their result? Well, they were frightened. (laughs) And they came to Moses and said, okay, we've heard enough from God. We don't want to hear from God anymore. We'll tell you what, you go meet with God. God can talk to you, give you his law. You come and tell us what the law is. And that's why the rest of the law was given by God directly to Moses, who then took it to the people. But the Ten Commandments, the core of the law, were shouted by God down to the people. So every Israelite had a chance to hear and believe God. Absolutely. So basically, you've got the law on the day of Pentecost being shouted by God off the mountain to the entire Jewish nation. And now you're going to see a parallel on the day of Pentecost because the representatives of the entire Jewish nation from all over the world are in the temple on the day of Pentecost, and God is going to make himself known. Absolutely. And where would the a thousand and, and thousands of Jews were on in the temple? Remember, we read earlier that when you came to any of the feasts, you weren't to come early. So you got, okay, in the, the, the temple area, by the way, in Jerusalem at the time of Christ, and this was Herod's temple called the second temple, but the temple area was about 37 acres. And you could fit, tens of thousands of people would fit very easily. There are some scholars that estimate there would be over 100,000 people in the temple on a day like a feast day like this. And okay, so you got (laughs) oodles of people showing up and many, many of them are bringing sacrifices. How do you handle that? What's going on? Well, Alfred Edersheim in his book, The Temple, writes about that. Here's what he says, starting in in my copy on page 262. He says, On the day before Pentecost, the pilgrim bands entered the holy city. Remember, they're coming. They're required by the law to be there. They're coming from all over the Jewish world, all over the known world, these Jews. The pilgrim bands entered the holy city, which just then lay in the full glory of early summer. It's Pentecost. It's June. Most of the harvest over all the country had already been reaped, and a period of rest and enjoyment seemed before them. As the stars shone out in the deep blue sky with the brilliancy peculiar to eastern climb, the blasts of the priest's trumpets announcing the commencement of the feast sounded from the temple mount through the delicious stillness of the summer night. Already in the first watch, so sunset has just occurred, the first watch would be from six to nine. Remember that the Jewish day started at sunset, so the feast of Pentecost started at sunset and would end at sunset the next day. So already by the first watch, starting with sunset, the great altar was cleansed. That's the huge altar associated with Herod's temple. And immediately after midnight, the temple gates were thrown open. People started coming in with their sacrifices and offerings at midnight, thousands of them. And what they're going to be there the whole night partying and having a great time. And he says, after midnight, the temple gates were thrown open for before the morning sacrifice, which was nine in the morning, all the burnt and peace offerings, which the people proposed to bring at the feast had to be examined by the officiating priesthood. Remember the sacrifices had to be without blemish. Each sacrifice had to be individually examined by a priest. That's going to take a while. Great as their number was, it must have been a busy time till the announcement of that morning glow. Here comes the dawn. 
extended to Hebron put an end to all such preparations by the giving of the signal for the regular morning sacrifice. After that, the festive offerings prescribed in numbers were brought. First, the sin offering, and he goes on, the Levites were now chanting the Hallel to the accompanying sound of the flute, and they were singing, and yada, yada. And then he says, Then came the peculiar offering of the day, that of the two wave loaves. Remember the two loaves baked with yeast, with sin, that were accepted? Here's the particular offering of the day with their accompanying sacrifices. And then Edersheim goes on, but this is what the day of Pentecost, it was a one-day feast. This is what it looked like. Tens of thousands and tens and tens of thousands of worshipers. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine the amount of blood from all those sacrifices and the, the priests running around like madmen trying to examine all these sacrifices, get all these sacrifices killed. Absolutely. And everybody was waiting for this morning sacrifice. So here's Jesus Christ. He knows this is coming. So what does the Bible tell us? In Luke chapter 24, verse 50, it says, Jesus led them out until they were opposite Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them, and it came to pass. While he blessed them, he was separated from them and was carried up into heaven, verse 52. And they, after paying homage to him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple. Now, these are the apostles. They don't know when the Spirit's going to be poured out. Christ just said, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is poured out. But these men are devout Jews at this point in time. They're just devout Jews who believe the Messiah has come and died for sins. So where are they going to be on Pentecost Day? Well, if it says they're continually in the temple and they're sure not going to miss that morning sacrifice, they would have been in the temple on the, the morning that the sacrifice was given. Now, another reason that the day of Pentecost event would have happened in the temple, if we think about what happened, really, on the day of Pentecost, that was the last time that the physical temple was the important temple to God. Because starting on the day of Pentecost with the new birth, the church became the temple of God. And so it's appropriate in this handing off where God, just like John's baptism and the baptism spirit, where John said, I baptize in water. There's a greater baptism coming. The physical temple had, uh, had sufficed for over a thousand years. We're going back to the tabernacle over a thousand years, but now the temple was going to change. It's only appropriate. It was in the temple that God finished his work with the physical temple and began his work with the spiritual temple, the church. Absolutely. So for example, 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you, you yourselves are God's temple? We're God's temple. Now we know also there was a sound that filled the whole house. We read about that. Remember that the sound of the wind filled the entire house. It was Acts chapter 2 verse 2 and suddenly a sound from heaven like a strong rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, <laughs> I've been outside when it's windy. You've been outside when it's windy. I've been outside when it's really windy. And I'll bet you've been outside when it's really windy. And you know what that sound is like. And now you're in the temple complex, and it's 37 acres. And the whole place is filled with the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Except there's no wind. 
Now, you know, what if you walked outside and, you know, you weren't paying attention and you hear this great wind sound and then it kind of, dawn- wait a minute, there's no wind. I don't, and you're hearing this sound, but there's no wind. You would stop, you would listen, you would wonder, it would catch your attention. Well, it sure caught these people's attention. They would get quiet. You know, thousands and thousands of people in the temple, there'd be a dull background roar. But when the whole house filled with the sound of wind, but there was no wind, everybody would get quiet. They'd be wondering. They'd be looking around. That would be a great time for the apostles to start speaking in tongues. And the people that were close to them and could hear it would then start to notice, well, wait a minute, these men are Galilean and they're speaking in languages they don't know. And they're praising God. And then more people would come and then more people would come. We know eventually that thousands and thousands came. And then Peter, who was sitting, stood up. And he spoke to the crowd, and we know that uh, some 3,000 people got born again that day. And you're not going to get those people in the upper room. Absolutely, you're not. And frankly, had the Pentecost experience, let's say, okay, it's the day of Pentecost. Where are the tens and tens of thousands of Jews? They're in the temple. If the apostles were in the upper room and they started speaking in tongues, would anybody in the temple be able to hear them? No, probably not. In fact, having been to Jerusalem, my next trip will be my 13th time over. I studied archaeology in Israel. You know, I can tell you, if you had a bullhorn and you were down in the city of David, somebody in the Temple Mount would have a hard time hearing you. And if you have thousands and thousands of people in that temple area and they're all talking, nobody's going to hear you. And besides, if the apostles were speaking the languages that the people inside the temple knew, then the people inside the temple would have just said, oh, look, there's people from our country must be down in the lower courtyards there in in some of those other areas and, you know, we're talking. It, (laughs) It doesn't make any sense that the Pentecost experience could happen in the upper room. And also remember that we're going to learn from Acts chapter 2, 8 to 11, that there were Jews from all over the Roman Empire, all over the Roman Empire. And that's what God wanted to do. He wanted to present his truth and the gift of Holy Spirit to all the Jews, just like he'd done with the law and the giving of the law that he'd shouted down from the mountain and given an opportunity for every Jew to hear and believe. And so here again on the day of Pentecost, he's giving an opportunity for Jews from all over the world to hear and believe and then take this news, this great news actually, back to the entire Jewish nation. That is back to the entire Jewish nation in the sense that it's, it's scattered all over the world by the time of Christ. Just another couple quick reasons I think that we know that Pentecost had to occur in the temple. If you remember, there were mockers. Well, there wouldn't have been any mockers in the upper room. And even if you had a courtyard and you had the, the apostles and the followers of Christ in the courtyard, you're not going to get mockers to come down out of the temple and go and, and mock. The point was that this was happening in the temple. It was already filled with Jews, and some of those Jews mocked. And remember then, too, it says that Peter was sitting down, and he stood up to speak to the crowd. Well, there are a number of commentators that recognize that by the time Christ— by 
the time Peter spoke, he had to be in the temple and he had to be speaking to the crowd. But he wouldn't have walked from an upper room, gone to the temple and sat down. When you put the whole picture together, the day of Pentecost happened in the temple of God, and it was God's presentation to his people of, you can get born again and have the gift of Holy Spirit. So let's just start at Acts chapter 2 and read through what happened here. It says, chapter 2, verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. We don't really know who the they were here from the context. It could be just the apostles or the apostles and the 120. Likely, the apostles and the 120, about 120 disciples, were all together. Verse 2, And suddenly a sound came from heaven like a strong rushing wind, and it filled the whole house, all 37 acres, where the apostles were sitting. And so now there's this sound of a wind, but no wind. And everybody gets calm going, I wonder what's going on. Tens of thousands of people looking around, wondering, quiet as a mouse. Verse 3, and there appeared to them, and we don't know who the them is. It could be the apostles. It could be the 120 and the apostles. It's doubtful that the tongues of fire appeared to the entire crowd. That's doubtful because the text doesn't say anything about the crowd seeing the fire. It talks about the crowd hearing the wind. So there appeared to them, at least for sure, the apostles, tongues as of fire, which spread out and came to rest upon each one of them. Obviously, it wouldn't be fire. It would have burned them up. But it looked like fire. And what does that mean? Well, basically, it's signifying God's acceptance of the people as an acceptable sacrifice. You know, God lit the tabernacle altar when Moses had the tabernacle erected. God lit that fire from heaven, or God lit the altar with fire from heaven. In Leviticus 9.24, God accepted Gideon's offering with divine fire. In Judges 6.21, Elijah's sacrifice was accepted by fire from heaven. In 1 Kings 18.38, David's offering was accepted by fire from heaven. 1 Chronicles 21.26, and God lit the fire on the altar of Solomon's temple with fire from heaven, 2 Chronicles 7, 1 to 3. So there was a long history in Israel of fire coming down and indicating that you were acceptable, and the fire came down on the apostles, the, this tongues that looked like fire. Verse 4, and when that happened, and they were all filled with Holy Spirit. Okay? There's the gift of Holy Spirit being poured out. Acts 2, 33 says, God gave it to Jesus who poured it out upon the apostles. And this is the first time in history the Spirit's being poured out. The law was given to all Israel. The Spirit's being poured out and made available here on the day of Pentecost. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And it was the disciples that did the speaking. And this is very important. People say, well, I don't speak in tongues. And they wait for God to move them. This says they began to speak in tongues. If people are going to speak in tongues, then you've got to know that you've got to move your mouth, your lips. You've got to make the sounds and God will give you the utterance. The syllables that come out will be from the Lord. 
And then verse 5 says, Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, deeply religious men from every nation under heaven. Just like when God spoke the Ten Commandments to the whole Jewish nation, there are Jews from every nation under heaven here. This is God's offering to Israel. You can get born again. You can get the gift of Holy Spirit. It was promised to you as part of the new covenant. I'm offering it to you. I'm offering it to every one of you, says God. And he's got everybody gathered. Verse 6 says, when the sound occurred, see, it was the, the sound of the wind that got everybody's attention. The sound of speaking in tongues continued that attention. The multitude came together and were bewildered because each one was hearing them speaking in his own language. And that's the miracle of Pentecost, that what God did here was energized that when they spoke in tongues, they would speak the languages that the men in the audience knew. In verse 7, and they were all amazed, these thousands and thousands of people, and marveled, saying, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it? that we're hearing them speaking, each one of us, in our own language in which we were born. And then they talk about the, the places they came from. Parthians. Parthia was a rival country to Rome. It's to the north and east of Israel. Medes, more straight to the north. Elamites, north and farther east, those who live in Mesopotamia. Again, part of that could be Rome, part of that Parthia. In Judea, Cappadocia is in Turkey. Pontus is in Turkey. The province of Asia is in Turkey. Phrygia and Pamphylia, both in Turkey. Egypt, we know where Egypt is. Parts of Libya on the north coast of Africa. Cyrene, visitors from Rome. We know where Rome is with Italy. Cretans from the island of Crete. Arabians from the Arabian deserts area. You know, there's Jews from all over the known world. God was making his word and, and this offer available to the whole Jewish nation. And for the 3,000 that got born again that day, they didn't all live in Judea. I'm sure that a good number of them came from these other places. And what are they going to do after they get born again, after they hear uh, Peter speak, after they're speaking in tongues? What are they going to do? They're going to go home and spread the word. And that's exactly what God wanted. And then, uh, um, boy, verse 12, some people were saying, what does this mean? And other people were mocking. These men are filled with sweet new wine. There's a great lesson in this. When you take a stand on the word, there are people that are going to mock. Just be ready for it. Don't let that defeat you. Don't let that stop the fire that lives inside you because of the Holy Spirit that you have and the, the privilege that it is to serve God and the great ability that we have to help people and serve God. You know, yes, there's going to be mockers. We need to get over it right away. There's going to be mockers. You're going to have resistance. Things are not always going to go well. You can't let that defeat you. You've got to have a vision of how powerful you are and what a great impact you can make in spite of any resistance that you encounter. Absolutely. And Peter is a great model for us because, because they were mocking. Peter didn't say, oh, if some of these people are mocking, um, let's just kind of go home. No, Peter went right at it, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and spoke, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem. And he's speaking to tens of thousands of people. Pay close attention to my words. And he gives a great sermon here about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he talks about what happens. He says, this is that which is spoken through the prophet Joel. It wasn't the fullness of what Joel spoke. 
but it was certainly part of what Joel spoke. Verse 17, and it will be in the last day, says God, I will pour out a portion of my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And even on my male servants and on my female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And I want to examine this a little bit because this is so important. Then I'll pour out my spirit and they will prophesy because what did it mean? I mean, if you went back to the time of Christ, when all they had known literally since the fall of Adam for 4,000 years, all they knew was that occasionally God would put his spirit upon somebody like Moses, like David, like Elijah, like Nathan, like Jeremiah, like Daniel, that got like Ruth, like Hulda the prophetess or Deborah the prophetess. You know, God would put his spirit on, on people and they would prophesy. And when they prophesied, they roared for God. I mean, Nathan, the prophet coming into David, you are the man, you know, or, or you get, um, God, oh, there's so many examples in the old Testament where those people just roared, you know, Samuel prophesying and saying, you know, is it not the wheat harvest? I'm going to call out to God and it's going to rain. And then there's a thunder and a rain. People are frightened of the, of God's prophets. Why? Because they brought power to the table. They spoke for God. Sometimes What's happened is with Christian prophecy, it's become tame and we get afraid of criticism. We get afraid we might say something wrong. We get we afraid we might give a false prophecy. You know, if your heart's in the right place and you're doing your best, then that's de facto. Your heart's in the right place and you're doing your best. Can you make a mistake? Yes. Is God upset about that? I'll tell you what. You know, in basketball parlors, they say you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And in prophetic parlance, it's the same thing. If you go to a Christian meeting and they open the opportunity to speak in tongues and interpret or prophesy, and you don't take that, you miss every shot you don't take. Now, does that mean you're supposed to speak in tongues and, and prophesy or whatever in every meeting? No, <laughs> they were trying that in Corinth. It didn't work. <laughs> Remember, what is it, brothers? When you come together, every one of you has a psalm and a, and a doctrine and a prophecy and an interpretation. And Paul says, let everything done, be done decently in order. But what it does mean is that there shouldn't be some kind of internal block in us. We should be walking with the, with the Spirit of God and have that confidence that we can speak and prophesy boldly. Because that's when, when Peter's here and he's talking to the crowd and he says, you know, your sons and daughters will prophesy and, and even your, your male servants and female servants are going to prophesy. Then the, the crowd got it. Wow. We're going to be prophets. No wonder in Acts 1.8, Christ said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Wow, guys, if you've accepted Christ as Lord, you have the gift of Holy Spirit. When the Bible says you get born again, you know, my my wife had babies. I know, you know, when, when, when a woman gives birth, there's a baby. When God gives birth, if you've been born again, there's a baby, and the baby is Holy Spirit, and it's the gift of God's nature which is born in you and becomes part of you. 
which is why 2 Peter 1, 4 says that Christians have a divine nature because God, who is Holy Spirit, gave birth in us and the baby is his nature in us, Holy Spirit. And if you have that nature in you, then what Christ said is true. You will receive power. So we've got power. And we've got power to speak in tongues, to speak in tongues and interpret, to prophesy, to receive revelation, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, discerning the spirits, to walk by the Spirit of God. We have that power. And it came to us on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which is the birthday of the church. But we don't have to wait for a special event to interpret or prophesy. We can manifest the Spirit every single day. And as I close this teaching, I want to encourage you. Pentecost was an amazing event and the birthday of the church and the empowerment of people that before didn't have any power. And now you and I, with the Holy Spirit of God, can walk in power. Let's do it. God bless you.